This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider. This podcast is entitled Dealing with the Debt Burden. It's part of The Great Shutdown and its Medium-Term Effects, a series from the 91 Investment Institute. With me is Russell Silverstone, Investment Strategist, Macroeconomic and Policy Research at 91 in London. Before we get into the semantics and the details and the nitty-gritty of this chat, Russell, debt is a four-letter word, but so is love and so is hate. Do we love or do we hate debt at the moment in general terms? Oh, that's a hello, Lindsay. That's that, that's the question, isn't it? Um, there's certainly no sign of of, of revolt against the debt. Let's put it that way. Um, yields on on all levels of debt are are incredibly low. I would I would argue at the moment we we love it. You love debt. Yeah. Your introduction says the following. As the world economy convulses from the effects of widespread restrictions on physical movement and everyday activity, many governments have stepped in to protect the labour market and working capital until economic normality begins to return. This, of course, you say, is exactly the right response. But the increased spending raises questions over what happens to the debt incurred, especially as liabilities were already at high levels following the global financial crisis. But it isn't just governments that face high debt, both corporate and household borrowing have also been increasing steadily in recent years, buoyed by historically low interest rates. In this paper that you kindly sent me, you set out your thoughts on the consequences of this debt, and you also suggest some ways to deal with it in the years ahead. So what you're saying is we're bringing something forward, but in the long term, we're going to have to pay for it. I think that's exactly right, Lindsay. So, you know, generally, I think the, the act of borrowing, as, as, as any of us would do, is, is bringing forward consumption, um, smoothing that consumption over a lifetime. And I'm absolutely clear in this paper that what governments have done is completely and utterly necessary. We are facing an economic downturn of historic proportions, and they have to protect um, people's jobs. They have to protect companies and the working capital of, of the economy such that when we do bounce back, we can sort of bounce back quite quickly because the jobs are still there and the, and the capital is still there. But yeah, the starting point isn't fantastic. I've used data from the Bank of International Settlements that aggregate it across the world. It's slightly lagged. Um, last update I had was in September 19. But since um, December 2008, so the start of the global financial crisis, the BIS data shows that debt across um, three subsectors, and those subsectors are governments, households and, and corporates, has increased just over $50 trillion. Um, so the, the, the increase we've seen since then has been absolutely monumental. And, and of course, now they're spending more. It's, it's, going to be, you know, it's going to be increasing even more in the, in the months and years ahead. $50 trillion, that's a number I can't even comprehend, Russell. No, it's, it's it's absolutely massive. And what's what's really interesting, and hopefully we we, we share in this paper, it's over half of that's actually come from China, and in particular Chinese um, companies, and the third has come from the US. But actually, the, the, the other major blocks that we look at, the eurozone, UK, and, and Japan, and those five make up you know the, the bulk of global GDP, hasn't actually increased that much uh, because there's been this big sectoral sectorial shift. And if you think how we we, you know, we all tend to behave in, in in a crisis is is you know when a crisis strikes our, our automatic reaction if if we're able to of course is, is is to try and save more money 
and households do that and, and companies do that. And so actually when you begin to look at how this debt has changed uh, in the in the Eurozone, actually household debt has fallen, literally fallen since uh, the global financial crisis. It's hardly changed at all in the UK. It's fallen for UK companies. Uh, Japan, both households and corporates have fallen. But the big increase, there's two big increases. One has been in Chinese corporate borrowing, and that's around about $16 trillion. And the other has been US government borrowing, and that's been $11 trillion. Yes, so the numbers are Im- unimaginably high. Yeah, they really are. But there's nothing new about debt, the, the four-letter word that I was referring to in my introduction. And I love, as a closet historian, I love your analysis of what has gone before us. I mean, it's not exactly that we've suddenly invented debt because of the global financial crisis or the Great Depression of the 1930s. Tell us a little bit, if you would, about the history of debt. Absolutely. You know, and I'm also a bit of a closet historian. And so, and so I've got a wonderful book by an old economist called Sidney Homer. And he, and, and he has a, it's called The History of Interest Rates. And he, and he manages to uh, sort of find interest rates um, to around about 4,000 years ago. And, uh, you know, the very first reference that he, he has is, is about a Babylonian king uh, that actually set interest rates uh, um, between sort of 30 uh, and 20%. And, and, and they were even collateralized. So we all think of sort of collateralized loan obligations as a you know as, as as a new thing but actually they were around about four thousand years ago which we thought was quite fun but yeah generally mm-hmm. um, government debt has has been used to, to finance war since time immemorial for a very long time you know so the concept's not new at all it can be traced back thousands of, of, of years it's only really um, post 1971 that the actual numbers of have taken off in, in, in a meaningful sense. And um, I sort of track, in the piece, I track UK government debt just because I can get the data back hundreds of years, uh, accurate data. And and, and you know, the increase, again, has just been absolutely enormous with widespread sort of globalisation and financialisation. Um, so whilst there's sort of nothing new about about the concept, uh, and, and as, 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 as perhaps we can discuss, there's nothing new about the concept of, of how governments traditionally have dealt with debt it's really in modern times that we've seen this massive explosion of it. We don't have the time to go back to Babylonian times and uh, work out how they paid back the debt after they'd initiated it with those massive interest rates you just referred to. Uh, but what is a very interesting slide in your presentation, which you sent me, is the following. And this is the title, The Recent Build-Up in Debt and the Additional Burden of COVID-19. So obviously the great financial crisis meant that debt escalated or the level of debt escalated enormously. And now with COVID-19, it's escalating even even more, it's probably gone parabolic if you look at look at a graph. So there's before COVID nineteen and before GFC, and there's after. Now this again is fascinating, and in in future times, closet historians like us will be looking at these case studies. Absolutely, and and, and again, you know, just to reiterate, I, I don't think there's any choice about this. Government at the moment is is in large, certainly large parts of the Western world, is literally substituting for the money that we as consumers and businesses as investors or in terms of investment would, 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 be, would be doing. So, yeah, I mean, they, they have to do this, but it's, it's a question really then of do we get to a point where, to use your analogy, you know, markets actually begin to, 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 to sort of hate this and, and fall out of love with government debt. And it's just not clear to me where the equilibrium is you know, at the moment. There is a case that actually... It doesn't matter, you know. And if you look at what's happened in Japan, their government debt to GDP is is, is absolutely enormous, and it's going to get even worse. But investors are completely repressed uh, by the Bank of Japan. Bank of Japan literally just print enough to buy all of that debt, 
and and and, and you know, it's it's a little bit like spinning plates. It's it's great while it's carrying on, but mm-hmm. uh, you know if markets begin to really rebel against this, then 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 there's all sorts of problems, and and, and say historically, um, lots of lots of ways which that has been dealt with. It's a very interesting point you've just made because one of your slides is entitled Does Debt Matter? Now, I've always been told that, Lindsay, if you have a couple of thousand quid debt with your bank, it's your problem. If you've got a couple of hundred thousand pounds debt with your bank, then it's the bank's problem, not yours. And does it really matter? The government of the United States, uh, the, the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank can keep on issuing debt as much as they like and load their balance sheet with debt. But it doesn't really matter. But does it matter? As I said, it's a four-letter word. Uh, absolutely, and, and I, I think that, you know, the reason it doesn't matter is is that investors are, are essentially being repressed, and and, and by this, you know, repression is is, is quite a, a specific term in, in financial markets, and you know, investors are essentially forced to buy that government debt uh, uh, yields they probably find uneconomic, and, and, and if they had a free choice. They'd go elsewhere. So either via regulation, you know, sort of liquidity requirements through, through, um, say, for example, Japanese yield curve control, they say the rate is X and it stays there. So, so it's a question of credibility. And, and whilst that credibility um, stays, then it's absolutely fine. And so, yeah, it's, it's not clear. It's not clear it matters. But I just think it's something you know, we, we should all absolutely be aware of because you know there may come a point where where it does matter but, but trying to identify that of course is is is, is, is the big question. Yes, it's a very big question indeed, and it's not for the man and the woman in the street, but it's for people like yourselves at 91 to worry about these things. You say in your conclusion, in Paper Promises, Philip Coggan opens the book by stating that the massive debts accumulated over the last 40 years can't be paid in full, and they won't be paid. Since it was published in 2011, debt across our three principal sectors and major economic blocks has increased by another 35 trillion US dollars and is expected to increase substantially more in response to the huge economic dislocation caused by COVID-19. So $35 trillion could go to $70, 100000000000000 And then in your fascinating final slide, you say the following, dealing with the debt burden, and it's number one, financial repression, two, and it goes on to number seven. Let's just briefly, if we can, quickly go through the seven points you make without too much detail. Financial repression is number one. You mentioned it earlier on. What do you mean by financial repression? What do you mean by highly likely? Yeah, absolutely. So, so financial repression is this idea that investors are forced by um, government debt at rates they probably wouldn't want to if they, if they had a free choice. So there's two, two examples that, that make this quite familiar. One would be yield curve control. So for example, the Bank of Japan says, we will buy all government bonds at a rate of zero. And therefore, there's, there's no free market. You know, the Bank of Japan is the buyer of last resort, and they're printing money to do it. We think this is going to happen in the US. The, the, the rate is to be determined, and they're likely to say, we will buy all shorter dated government bonds, perhaps two years, perhaps even five years, at a rate of, let's say, 0.25%. Uh, and therefore, you know, even if you want to sell government bonds, it doesn't really matter because the Federal Reserve is the market. So that's one way. And the other way is, is really just through regulation. So, for example, and very quickly, one of the regulations that came about after the GFC, global financial crisis, was requirement for banks to hold high-quality liquid assets. Surprise, surprise, those high-quality liquid assets um, were government bonds. Mm. So through regulation, investors were forced, or banks in this case, were forced by government bonds. 
So that's what we mean by financial uh, repression. It's been used historically and, 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 and notably in the aftermath of the Second World War, where, where real yields, i.e. once adjusted for by inflation, were kept very, very negative, and, and governments essentially got out of their debt that way. Let's go on to the next six, and we'll do them briefly if we can. Number two, inflation. You put under inflation, can't see how. We haven't had inflation for many, many years, despite the fact that the world is awash with liquidity. Can it change? Because a lot of people are saying, well, we're going to get hyperinflation now because of this extra stimulus by the central banks. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. It's, it's a re- I think those arguments are a rerun of what we saw in the GFC, uh, which is everyone assumed we're going to get massive inflation. Uh, there's, there's no real working model of inflation in the world at the moment, as far as I can see. It's probably globalisation. Um, there's probably excess saving in the world. Uh, and whilst globalisation is growing back, there's going to be an awful lot of saving. The only way I can see uh, inflation coming about is, is if those workers that have literally been keeping us alive in a number of cases are awarded large uh, sort of increases in minimum wages. So you see a uh, sort of cost push type inflation, but in in the short term, uh, no, it's, it's it's very hard to see. You know, all of that money GFC didn't create inflation. It's not obvious this will after uh, either. Number three, default. Very unlikely. What you're saying there is uh, presumably developed world governments defaulting on the debt that they've issued to uh, uh, to the people that are giving them money. In other words, uh, so you think that's very very unlikely. I think I think it's it's it, you know, ultimately it's a political decision. Uh, and and interesting, in the last couple of days. Uh, President Trump in the US has, has, has threatened essentially to not pay China back their treasury bills. You know, yes. that, is a, that is a default, uh, which is why it's not going to happen, of course, because it, it, it would mean the, the end of the entire financial system. But no, uh, it, 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 you know, when, when you have access to, to uh, the printing press, uh, you know, default in a technical sense is, is unlikely. I mean, certainly it could happen at a corporate level <coughs> um, if people have overstretched themselves. But, but at the moment, it, it doesn't seem particularly likely. Number four is growth. Difficult to see. And of course, we won't get any growth for the next couple of years. I wouldn't have thought we don't need to go into that because it's obvious even to a person like myself. Number five is taxes. Few will dare, you say. In other words, there's not many uh, governments around the world that are going to increase taxes in order to relieve the burden on themselves by burdening the, the man and woman in the street. No, I think I think that's exactly right, and and of course, um, it, 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 if anything, it would it would provide a, a growth headwind. There is one thing we touch on in the paper, which is which is a real sort of political hot potato, and that's actually sort of wealth taxes. So, you know, particularly amongst households, when we when we look at debt, we're only looking at one side of the of a household balance sheet. Of course, on the other side of that are our assets, and 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 in the US. Uh, um, you know, the, the household assets outweigh household liabilities by a factor of eight to one. So, you know, it is possible, uh, but it seems highly unlikely because it's a, it's, a, it's a noxious political decision that you can impose wealth taxes. Uh, it certainly happened in the aftermath of, of World War I uh, here in the UK. But, um, yeah, I think few will dare at, at the moment, but it's certainly a possibility. Number six is reduced spending. Not much appetite for that because at these very, very testing times, people need to see their government actually increasing spending because of obvious yeah. reasons. Yeah, no, totally. It's it's exactly both both the political and the practical pressures completely the other way. We we're going to be trying to become much more resilient. Uh, I, I think of one of the lessons certainly here in the in the UK, and I, I think in the US is that we've run the public sector very very lean. We've gone for efficiency. 
over resilience and, and, and arguably, as I think I say in here, you know, that, that's actually been a false economy because we've now spent, ended up spending far more than we would have otherwise. So, no, I, I, I think just no appetite at all. And the final one is funny money requires political will, you say, under the funny money headline. What do you mean by funny money, first of all? And secondly, requires political will. Well, that's in, in these funny times is very, very unlikely as well. Yeah, no, uh, no, it is. So, so, so funny money is things like helicopter money. It's things like sort of modern monetary theory, and and, and it's really easy. You know, if we again we go back to our, our, our history, I, I talk about a, a guy called Dionysus of, of Syracuse, and 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 he he was in trouble, and 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 he literally recalled all of the money in the system, and and he he changed the one drachma coins into two drachma coins, and solved his debt problem. You know, it politically, you know, it's very very easy to 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 get more money into the system you just need to print an awful lot very very quickly um helicopter money but of course to do that is a very heavy political decision and given the sort of history particularly in europe of that sort of thing although obviously we know zimbabwe's tried the same in recent years um you know you you've, you've got to be very firm in your political view if that's the way you want to go um so you know helicopter money it, it's possible uh, in, a, in a limited sense but you know, I think we worry that once you sort of open that box of actually literally printing un- unfunded money, um, it's, it's going to be very difficult to put the lid back on it again. And modern monetary theory is, is just this idea that, you know, governments can't, can't default. And as long as inflation remains, remains low, you, know, you can pretty much sort of raise as much money as you want. And, 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 and that doesn't seem to be... A particularly robust theory to me either. So we 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 lump all of those you know under funny money, and 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 you know it's certainly possible we're going to need radical solutions. But you know it, it, ultimately this is not about central banking. Uh, you know it's not about about sort of sort of independent fiscal authorities. It's about politicians actually wanting to do this. I shouldn't find it fascinating, but I do find it fascinating. Russell, thank you so much for your analysis. That was Russell Silverstone, uh, investment strategist, macroeconomic and policy research at 91 in London.